What would you ask someone who had committed a series of grisly, heinous crimes if you got the chance? What if that person had spent years stalking women in the streets of your city? Now picture yourself sitting in a room with that person who was killed in cold blood, not once or twice, but multiple times. I'm Chris Lay, the co-host and producer of Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a true crime podcast from Lee Enterprises. And I'm Nia Cardona, the other half of this crime pod. We're heading into the home stretch of this particular series, which we are calling Fearfully, She Walked the Streets. So if this is your first time with us, you should go back a few episodes and get caught up on everything that's come before. Robert Sylvester Alston had been jailed for 22 years by the time Greensboro News and Record journalist Nancy McLaughlin was given the opportunity to meet with him in prison. Convicted of the four murders he pleaded guilty to and serving multiple life sentences with no chance of parole, Alston had declined every request for an interview since his arrest. As we detailed in last week's episode, in 2015, Nancy had stumbled onto the opportunity to profile Larry Darby Jr., who had been mistakenly charged with one of Alston's possible victims, Bernice Robinson. Her murder is still technically unsolved, but does share all the hallmarks of Alston's other killings. Researching that story on Darby was what put Nancy on the path that would lead to her sitting in a room with Alston. On this week's episode, you'll hear a continuation of my conversation with Nancy about those stories and more. We get into the nitty-gritty details of what it was like to prepare for that sort of interview, and what it was like when she had to leave the prison and write up that story. We'll be editing in readings of Nancy's articles with Nat's audio, as well as excerpts from other coverage going back even further into the news and record archives. You can find links to all the relevant stories that you need in our show notes, along with ways to contact Chris and myself. And hey, make sure you're subscribed to this show so you get to hear next week's episode where Chris and I have a little roundtable chat, as well as the shows that we've got in the works in the coming months. And now, after a quick break, chapter four in our series, Fearfully She Walked the Streets, titled, He Just Looked Evil. You need to explain how the hell this all came about. Like, how do you get into the jail? How do you even ask for the interview? You you gotta just give me all the details. Lay it on me. It's weird because, you know, you hear about these people, you know, if you cover a, a trial, you think in your mind, I'm going to write that person in prison and see if we can talk about, you know, maybe some things that weren't said during the trial or to see if they're sorry or whatever, you know, you want to do a follow-up. And so as I was talking to Mr. Darby and as I was following his case, I was thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great to talk to Robert Alston? I mean, he was so typical in so many ways. He went to one of the best public high schools here. He was involved in activities, ROTC, his parents were hardworking people. And I thought, you know, there's still some, you know, there were some women whose murders were not ever cleared. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to talk to him and see if he would tell me about any of these other crimes? Maybe he was involved with some of the women whose murders were not solved. So Back then, you could call, you know, the PR person with the prison. And so I did. And they said, we'll call the prison where he's at now and ask. And so that's what I did. They asked him. He said yes. And then I planned a visit. I'm glad that I didn't have the option of writing him because when I actually got to the prison, 
he told me that if he had had my address, he would have told me not to come because he wasn't going to talk to me. So things worked out for the best in that way. But really, it was reaching out to him through the prison people and him saying yes initially. I asked why he said yes initially, and he said he wasn't sure. So things kind of worked out in my favor. And as I sat there, as I sat there in front of him, and, you know, if you've been in prisons, you know, you can't take anything in except for pencils and a notepad. So that's all I had with me. And as we uh, sat there, I'm thinking, okay, I got to have a way, a reason for him to continue to talk. So I said, do you have any regrets? And at that moment, I think he wanted to open up a little bit to say no or to say yes. And he said that he had regrets for the family, but he wasn't going to ever talk about where people were buried or solve any other crimes. So he was defiant, but he was a little talkative at first. Blue lights in the distance, and she was only getting louder. Robert Sylvester Alston said that he and a naked Joanne Robinson were arguing in a vacant lot over her demand for more money for sex that night in April 1991, and so he hit her. As the lights of the police cruiser moved closer, he cupped his hand over her face to silence those piercing screams. But she fought back, and Alston strangled her. Investigators think Robinson, a young mother struggling with a crack cocaine addiction, was Alston's first victim. He has pleaded guilty to killing four women. He hints that there may have been more. He has been labeled the city's only serial killer in recent history. It was like letting the genie out of the bottle, Alston recalls. I couldn't put it back in. Alston, age 46, has been in state prison for the past two decades. He is serving four consecutive life sentences, plus 40 years for the murder of those four women, all of whom disappeared off Greensboro streets in the early 1990s. He was just in his 20s when the killings took place. Now, Alston, who has declined all other interviews since his arrest, seems to be pointing at more victims, musing aloud that women believed to be involved in drugs or prostitution aren't always reported as missing. The loved ones don't always know where they land and where to look. With long, salt-and-pepper twisting locks of hair, Alston has no expectations of leaving prison while he is alive. He also is not asking for forgiveness for killing and dismembering those four women, for taking them away from parents and children. What's his body language in this moment? Is he looking you right in the eyes? Is he being shifty? Is he cool, cavalier? What? He's looking me right in the eyes. He had soft brown eyes at some point, and then they grew dark at some point. He talked to me like maybe I was uh, an old neighbor at some times, and then in other times, I was clearly someone who was there to use him, I think, in his mind. He was very attentive, and... He looked at everything that I did, and at times he would look at my pencil and he would stop talking because I was making notes. We went through this game almost. Sometimes he would let me write and sometimes he wouldn't. So I would just put my pencil down. And as I said, you couldn't take a 
recorder or anything into the prison. So some things I had to like mentally just remember. And we're talking from what I read, like a four hour sit down with him, right? Right. And the time went by quickly. Mind you, when I first got there and before I ever met him, I told the prison staff, no matter what I say in front of him, because I don't want to do anything to put him off. But I told him, I said, whatever you do, do not leave me with him. And so I'm sitting in this like big cafeteria area and they bring him in and he shackled his hands and his feet. And these two guards, they unlock him and then they walk away. They leave the building. And the only person who's nearby is this security guard that is uh, in kind of like a tower to the side. And she's talking to someone about her vacation. I can hear her and her back is to us. So when I first got there, I was a little nervous trying not to be. And in my head, I was like, okay, I'm not staying here long, you know, because I'm, I'm not feeling very safe. But then we start talking and four hours go by quickly. I can't even imagine that. It's just in a blink of an eye, huh? Because the conversation did it more or less. I know you said he would pause sometimes with the writing and stuff, but it was was it pretty fluid how, how you were talking with him? It was. And I knew that there were things that he wouldn't talk about because he would steer away from them. And I would try to steer back, you know, give it an hour or so and then steer back. But he would talk in detail about certain things like the last woman that he picked up he actually reached out and he grabbed one of my pencils and of course at that moment I'm still trying not to seem unnerved but he asked if he can have a piece of paper and I give him the paper and he draws a map with details of a stoplight or intersection where he was and how if he had gone to the left he would have gone home And if he had gone, but he saw a woman on the right and he said that his mind was telling him, don't pick her up, but he went to the right and picked her up. And she was the woman who survived his attack that night. And she was the one who was able to help identify him with the police. So as he was writing the map, he took great detail. He took his time. He wasn't rushed. And it it was those kind of things that took up, ate up four hours. And then he told me the story of exactly how he went along the path to her and picked her up and where he took her and how he, quote unquote, beat the brakes off of her and flashing light unnerved him a little. He tossed her over the embankment of a bridge. He heard her still groaning, but he left. And he said he could have gotten back out of the car and finished it, but he left for some reason. And this is when you were talking about his body language. This is when like his eyes grew dark and it was the darkest of the whole interview. And he said, I don't know what God she serves, but she was lucky tonight. And I just kept thinking, you know, this is the man that Greensboro was afraid of. You know, because as I said earlier, sometimes his eyes were like a soft brown and they kind of danced when he talked, like like when we talked about school and what he was involved in and and ROTC. 
But that was the man at that moment who killed all those women. His eyes were just very dark. And he said that if he had never picked her up that night, he probably would have continued because he never would have been found out. That's what he thought. In interviews with the News and Record in the 1990s, those who knew Alston said repeatedly he came across as a loner. A neighbor who lived across the street and is now deceased called him a sweet child. At Grimsley High, where he graduated in 1987, Alston signed up for the ROTC program every year. He didn't participate in the color guard or the drill team and barely did enough to remain a cadet, recalled the head of the program at the time. Grimsley's 1987 yearbook also lists his participation in junior varsity football, as well as track his junior and senior years, and as a homeroom officer when he was a sophomore. In prison, Alston holds on to the memory of a guidance counselor, telling him he didn't have a strong enough math background for the electronics elective he sought the necessary permission to take. Former FBI profiler Candace DeLong, who has studied Alston from the News and Records archives, says she sees a man who has followed a predictable pattern for a serial killer. Loner, internalizing what others have said of him, disconnecting between what he wanted to do with his life and his ability to accomplish, a trigger that has something to do with sex. I'd be interested to know if there were any missing little girls from the time he was 10 years old until the time he started killing, says DeLong, who hosts Deadly Women on the Investigation Discovery Channel. Serial killers work up to the killing, They start practicing and acting out much younger. Usually their first time is not a murder. It involves an assault, an abduction, a rape. Alston's own words seem to validate these suspicions. Nobody knows where it started. They know where it ended. You know, talking about the eyes thing, is it safe to say that's an experience you've never had before with another individual? the light versus dark situation? Well, it was definitely the starkest because you know how people, when you talk to them, they try to hide their inner selves. And yes, it was probably because as I said, at at some points I felt comfortable with him. And then at other points I was thinking, okay, if he grabs this pencil, I need to put my hands over my neck or something so he doesn't stab me. But at that moment, it was just, a stark contrast with who he was at points earlier in the interview. And it was all his eyes because his body language pretty much stayed the same, but it was the eyes. The super cliche eyes are the windows to the soul thing. Exactly. Popping in my mind. And it's just so spooky what you're explaining. It was. And imagine being there, you know, he told me, you know, I asked if he thought he would ever stop. And if no one had stopped him and he said no, and he said, you know, if you had been out there, you'd have been a victim. I knew that he still had a lot of evil in him. He had moved away from Greensboro for a while before this all started. And he had kids with someone and he said that he left that woman and his kids because he felt something evil was coming out of him. And when we were talking, he wouldn't talk about his kids or where they were or if he had seen them even recently before, you know, all of this happened. But he did say that he hoped they only inherited the good. So he understands that there is a lot of evil or was a lot of evil inside him. Going off of that, 
this is the biggest question I have for you. And, you know, how your article ended was he just doesn't want to give the answer on why. Not that you ever could give an answer to why he chose, you know, to why he chose to do these things. But I mean, what do you think's up with that? That's that seems very bizarre to me. I think that the only thing he has left, as someone said to me, it's kind of like the wealth that he has left. You know, the state has his body. He'll never get out of prison, but he has something that makes him important, maybe. I mean, he's never told his story and he's never talked about this. And he didn't talk about it in a way that, you know, he was using it as as a way to, to go before a parole board or anything, to try to go before a parole board or anything. It was that he had this that he was going to hold on to. And he was going to die with it. And it was something that he had that no one else knew that because he said he was sorry to the families that he hated what he did to the families. But still, he wouldn't say what happened to the the torso of one woman and his fam- and the family uh, asked me to ask him, you know, what he did with it. And you know, even if it was a place they could go to, even if it wasn't still there, a place that they could at least go to, to feel her or to be in spirit with her or whatever. And the only thing he said was, I can't tell them that. I won't tell them that. So he was very much determined to not have other people know his full story, I guess. Recalling what he has done brings no particular emotion. He speaks matter-of-factly about watching women die. Alston says he hadn't meant to kill Joanne Robinson in April 1991 and remembers watching her go limp in his arms. I said, damn. Not only did the killing continue, but the gruesomeness ratcheted up as well. All that remained of his next victim, Sharon Martin, was her head. Police found it six months after Robinson's death, in woods near Murphy Traditional Academy and Jackson Middle School. She, too, had last been seen on Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. It was Shamika Warren's death in July of 1992 that led police to believe they were on the trail of a serial killer. Warren, age 19, was last seen at the end of May near Julian Street and Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. She had moved to Jacksonville, Florida with her immediate family, but returned to stay with her extended family. When she stopped calling home and relatives here couldn't find her, her parents reported her missing. She was such a happy person, said Brenda Warren Noble, her mother. She would give you her heart. Investigators wondered why, after decapitating Warren, her killer would leave the torso behind. Alston's answer is sobering and simple. I didn't have all my tools, he said. He eerily describes walking almost every day past where her body lay until, at the end of July, police were directed to it by a caller. It was hot. A heat wave, Alston recalled. I could smell her. Investigators suspected it was the killer. They were right. I don't know why, Alston says about making the call. A year and a half after Warren's death, Alston would kill again. The body of Lois Williams was found in December of 1993, in the Piedmont Memorial Cemetery on McConnell Road. 
Alston, then a restaurant dishwasher, says he remembers being at work one day and pausing to see an interview with Williams' sister on a mounted television screen as others around him went about their business. He says he didn't keep up with what was being reported about the investigation, but this woman drew his attention. She seemed to be talking directly to him. I remember her, just like I'm looking at that trash can, Alston recalls. She said, you didn't have to do her like that. You are going to make a mistake, and we are going to find you. By early 1994, investigators had arrested at least one suspect, who was later released. Alston hadn't stood out, but that would change. When Alston picked up his next victim at the crossroads of Bennett and Julian Streets, he says he was at a crossroads himself. He was having doubts whether she should be his next victim. I slipped, he says. He left a witness. You know, this man, now he's in his 50s, but, you know, he has so much time in prison and he's never sought any attention and he doesn't want to do any good with the information that he knows, even though there are families still hurting all these years later. Um, There were other unsolved deaths in our community. And some of them, he said, well, I didn't do it. But he also told me that he preyed on those women because when you're a prostitute or when you're strung out on drugs and you've left your family, they never know where you land. So they don't know what's going on with you. If you ended up in another state and you're healthy and just embarrassed to call home or whether someone has taken your life, the family just doesn't know. And they don't know to actually call the cops or others and say, you know, this person is missing. They don't know which cops to call or whatever. So he hinted that there are other bodies out there. He said, the police know where I stopped, but they don't know where I started. So this is a man who is conniving and he is intentionally hurtful, I guess, because to families, because he just doesn't want them to know where their loved one is. You know, spending all those hours with him and going through all these details and, you know, listening to all the stuff that he's got to say, and even with these breadcrumbs that he's leaving you, you know, the cops don't know where I started, though. You know, you leave the jail. What kind of headspace are you at? Is it kind of like a hangover feeling? Because that's just a lot to deal with. Yes, it's a lot to deal with. And the first thing I did was call my editor to let him know I was done. I couldn't get him on the phone, but I called another editor, Teresa Prout. And we call her Boss Prout because she was the kind of person who could get you off a ledge easy. And so I called her and I said, you know, I I just finished this interview. I feel icky, but I also feel like I know more about this man, but I also feel like You know, I could have gotten more if he would just open up. And I told her about how he would stop talking if I was writing certain things down. And she was like, well, let's talk it out. So I had to drive two and a half hours back to Greensboro. So uh, three hours. So we talked on the phone and I kind of cleared my head and put all of that stuff in categories for me to recall. But it helped me unraveled the story that I just got from him, which was 
this is a, a very evil man who did some horrible things. And if he ever gets out of prison, he's going to do them again. I have no doubt. I know that technically he's never supposed to get out of prison. But he told me that the genie was out the bottle and that it could never go back in. So I had never I had never been in such close proximity to someone who had done such evil things. So I just had to like debrief with my editor, take a breath and just get it all down on paper because it wasn't until I actually got it all down on paper that I could really let it go. I mean, I had a lot of emotions from sitting there and as a reporter, of course, you're never supposed to let those emotions on. And I felt like I couldn't release them until the story was written and done. I needed to put it all in my word, which is what I did. But still to this day, I sometimes go to the State Department of Correction website just to see where he's at, you know, because he's moved since the last time, just because, you know, I know who I was talking to. And I, I just, you know, I just always felt a little uneasy about, you know, knowing whether he's still locked up or has figured a way to get out. Yeah, I just, those emotions are still kind of with me a little because I, I felt such pain for those women and their families. And, you know, I was hoping that I could do something to help one of the families with their grief. And I really wasn't. But there was just a lot of emotions of being across the table. And that's where we were, across the table from someone who admits that he did all of these things. And I've interviewed people in prison before who had done horrible things, but never a serial killer. And it was while talking to an FBI profiler that I really realized what I was getting myself into when I was talking to him. Police were never able to find the killer of Bernice Robinson, whose throat was slashed. When a cold case team interviewed Alston about her death, he told them he didn't do it. Police later ruled him out as a suspect. At the court hearing, Alston, at times, smiled and appeared unconcerned, according to news coverage at the time. That upset the judge and members of Martin's family, who were present. He wasn't the least bit humbled, standing in a courtroom and hearing it all recounted in front of him, says Newman, the Guilford County Assistant District Attorney. Defendants might bow their heads, will show some shame. We never saw any of that from Mr. Alston. It wasn't that tough guy look we get from young kids today. He just looked evil. Alston also refused to tell police where he had hidden parts of the women's bodies. You can smirk and grin all you like, Judge Peter McHugh told Alston, before asking him to search his soul and tell Martin's family where those body parts could be found. I have had time to search my soul, Alston responded. What I did was wrong, and I've made peace with God. Only me and God will have those answers anyone wants to know. To this day, he holds tight to those secrets for a simple reason, Newman believes. I think that's his form of wealth, in that he possesses details that we don't know. Brenda Noble, the mother of the 19-year-old victim whose headless body was found, says she still wants to know what he did with the rest of her daughter's remains. That continues to haunt me, Noble says. I have interviewed 
Lorraine Ahern, and she was explaining how back in the day there wasn't so much fandom surrounding serial killers and people being heavily invested in, you know, armchair detectives with true crime and that kind of thing. When you came out with these couple of articles, you know, closer to now, present day, do you guys find that there was some good traction at the paper with this kind of thing? Was there heightened interest or was it kind of just, you know, kind of lost in the shuffle like it was in the past? I had done a story years ago. There was a prostitute who had been left for dead in a dumpster. And it was in a place, a low-income housing community, where there were lots of apartments. There was uh, businesses across the street. And no one claimed to see anything. So I did a story talking to the investigator who opened his notes for me. And I did some stories on you know, the last day of her life and how she got to that moment from early childhood to how she ended up in a dumpster. And it was a popular story. And people at the paper were doing those kind of stories. There were just awesome writers who would take a moment in time and go back and develop a story around it. So I think that it was just becoming more popular at that moment. So I felt like I was helping to bring attention to stories that might not see the face of day. And it did spark an interest in other stories. So I think that maybe it did spark something. But at the same time, we had some awesome reporters. And uh, Lorraine, who you talked to, she was a columnist and a reporter, and she dug deep in those kind of stories. So I guess it was a good time for this story, the one on Mr. Alston. But at the same time, you know, we had been doing those kind of stories over the years because of the kind of reporters we had at the paper. Alston says people think they know what made him do it. He says he wasn't molested or bullied, but he stops there. I won't feed anyone's fascination with my crimes, Alston says. That trigger, that one thing that pushed me over the edge, I'll die with that. Four hours of conversation reveal a man who, at times, comes across as charismatic, opinionated, and up on current events. He is also, at times, nonsensical. I don't see myself as a serial killer, but people do, Alston says. Society is so quick to put monikers on people. Name tags. Robert Alston. That's who I am. Occasionally, he appears not to understand himself and turns quiet. He spends time emphasizing what he won't discuss, but then gives enough details to piece together his story. Those brown eyes dance with the soft press of his handshake, but also are quick to turn dark and vacant, specifically when recounting the mistakes that led to his capture. At times, it's easy to forget what he's done. Other times, he is unflinching about tossing a woman over a bridge like she was nothing. I can't undo what I've done, Alston says. If I could restore those lives I've destroyed, I would. In court, he says he wasn't smirking, just feeling incredibly free of any burdens. I'm sitting there and it's like a relief, Alston says. 
What else can they do to me? In prison, he wakes up before 5 a.m. each day with determination. He has survived 20 years and knows he could easily be here another 20 years or more, he said, by keeping his mind occupied. If you stop living, you stop surviving, Alston says. He has completed a certification for that electronics class he couldn't take back in high school. He earns 26 cents to a dollar a day in prison for a variety of jobs. Lest he give the impression that he wants to polish up his image to the outside world, a guard once asked me if I had the chance to escape, would I? I said yes. As he turns to go back to his cell, Alston still won't say what he did with those remains that were never found. They can't be found, he emphasizes without elaborating. But at this moment, there's more on his mind. They said in court that I had no remorse, and I do, Alston says. I had no right to be nobody's judge and jury. And I took those people away from their families. And I regret that. But what's done is done. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you're just dying to let me know about any of this? There was just one thing that just always intrigued me. And he told me, I asked him, Mr. Olson, if anyone had ever figured it out before the police did. And he said, yes. He said that someone had approached him and he wouldn't tell me the gender or anything about the person, but that the person had said to him, I know it's you. I know what you've done and you need to stop. You need to get away from here. And he said he just turned his back and kept doing what he was doing. So he never said if that played any part in the very last one that he did, but I've always wondered how I could find out who that was. And I know that so many years later, I never will know. But I think that it says that the people who know something about crimes that go on even today, that they could do a world of good in our communities because there are people who know, you know, what happened to this person or that person and just choose not to be involved. But from what he said, there was at least one person who knew. And so I'm thinking it could have stopped much earlier. So that's always lived with me. That's the kind of stuff that could keep you up at night. Yeah. And it, it goes to say, just like what you said, it's there could always be that one person in any given case. And they just don't think what they know or is important or what they do know is too scary to tell. But it's usually that one that one character in the background that could really change things or change the trajectory of things. So that's, that is a fair, fair message. Yes. That was the only thing I've just always in my heart carried that, you know, that when with crime stoppers and other things that people can make a difference, even if they know just a little detail. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next week with a conversation between myself and Nat about what it was like to present this story, as well as lots of other additional details from the early 90s that we weren't able to fit into the series. A tremendous thank you to Nancy McLaughlin and Lorraine Ahern for taking the time to talk with us, as well as Jennifer Fernandez, the managing editor at the Greensboro News and Record, who put this whole thing in motion to begin with. Make sure you check out the show notes for links to the articles that you heard, as well as other relevant info from the archives of the News & Record. Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles is a product of Lee Enterprises, 
It is produced, hosted, recorded, edited, and everything else by Nat Cardona and myself, Chris Lay. If you appreciate the show, we encourage you to support whichever newspaper it is that serves your community. 